0: We're going to get a little insight from God's choice of Moses as a leader of Israel. Um, and how Israel really comes into shape and comes into uh, to form around Moses. Now, if you know, and, and you know this, Moses was not the king of Israel. Um, he was not a politician. Um, Moses was a prophet. Um, uh, he was a mouthpiece for God. Um, he was appointed to be the spiritual leader for Israel. So, um, they, they kind of, you know, Israel comes to be, the, 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 there's this they're this slave nation, these slave uh, people that are under Egypt. God raises up Moses, and they kind of all rally around Moses because Moses is is the one with the boldness to go in front of the king and say, let God's people go. And then when God lets them go, Moses is the one with the stick, right? So you follow him, and he's the one doing the miracles and and performing the signs. But Moses always told people, hey, don't look at me. I'm just the messenger, and I'm pointing people to the Lord above. Um, But uh, again, Moses was not the king, but he was the leader particularly the spiritual leader of Israel. Um, but the, the focus of Moses in this text is going to send a very clear message that his role as leader is not a superficial one, that his role as a leader was very important um, and very essential, um, and, 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 and as leaders are always very essential in God's community, um, in God's communities. But also, uh, we're going to learn tonight about the participation um, and the response of the community, of the people of particularly Israel, how they respond to Moses, and how um, the people um, of God, the leaders that God puts in place in the community of God, we're going to see how all that begins to work together. Um, We've kind of seen things, um, kind of. we've not really talked about the community of God, we've we've talked about Israel, we've talked about Moses, but we've really just seen God doing these amazing things. But now, as we're going to read into Exodus from from this point forward, we're going to see things get a little bit more practical, we're going to th- see things get a little bit more civil, a little more organized, um, and as God literally begins to kind of put the pieces in place for Israel to be a nation, and a nation is going to require a lot of infrastructure, right? A lot of um, you know organization, um, a-, a lot of uh, uh, different parts and pieces to go into making anything, any community, any organization, any nation, especially um, work. And and I guess kind of to describe this or kind of set this up, so far Israel um, has been more of a care. And by by character, I mean um, Israel. We've been reading about Israel. This happened to Israel, and this happened to Israel, and Israel went through this, and they came through this, and God did this. We've really just seen, when when we read the word Israel, we just kind of refer to this group of people that really has no organization. They have no really kind of form. They're just people that God is doing things for, and that God is doing things within, and that they're observing God. But tonight, we're going to see Israel kind of take shape and become more of a community, become more of a civil society, um, so instead of seeing it from a very far away, kind of a, a top-down approach, we're going to start seeing it from inside the walls or inside the camp, um, if you will. And if that doesn't make sense, it'll come, it'll start making sense, I promise, as we start, um, as we get going. Um, so we've seen them as a whole be rescued. We've read stories um, with morals and messages how God is powerful and that God can, uh, you know, do amazing things in and through and around us. But tonight, we're going to see things kind of become more relational and again, more, practical and more person-to-person um, and, and how we all fit into the story um, and it's going to kind of you know kind of really show all of us I think how our role um, are, is so important um, so and and, and we're going to see a lot of that not just tonight but going forward in Exodus so 1718 into 19 they we get to see Israel as a functioning community for the first time um, something that will foreshadow Israel's establishment as a nation and is even more important for us because the church kind of follows is is supposed to follow follow this pattern and in, in these, in these lessons that we learned tonight. So Moses' role... Is going to be given a new light because he's no longer just a mouthpiece. He's no longer just the prophet who's just parroting things from God. Um, he's actually going to be the leader, um, which brings a lot of responsibility. He's the leader of this community, and, and that's a big, big mantle to, 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 to bear. Um, and in this first story, uh, we're going to see Israel um, go into battle. And this is the first time we're going to read about this, uh, and it's going to become a constant theme, a constant trend. Israel is going to face a lot of opposition. A lot of wars are going to be fought um and, and we see Moses lead Israel into battle now Moses was not a fighter right but his job was still the leader and as the leader he was he had to be present. And he had to figure out how does he fit into that, right? For years, he was just a prophet that just spoke from, from, from way off to a big crowd. Now he's actually leading the nation in day-to-day decisions. Hey, we've got to fight this battle. We've got to make this the call. We've got to do, make this deal and do this thing. So all of a sudden, he realized that he has a lot more responsibility than maybe he once did. And, and, and after this first episode, we're going to dive even deeper into his role as leader and get kind of some of the day-to-day, um, get a look at the day-to-day approach that Moses had to deal with. So the first story begins, chapter 17, verse number 8, um, with Israel is traveling along the road. Um, I'll show you a map in a little bit. Um, we're gonna Israel's traveling through the wilderness. They're on their way almost to, the, to Mount Sinai, and they face a new threat. So verse number 8 says, Now Am- Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now, Rephidim is kind of in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula, and I'll show you a map in a minute. You'll get to visualize that. Um, but this is the first major obstacle that Israel has faced once they crossed the Red Sea. Um, now, they've ran into trouble with supply shortages. Remember, there was no water. Last week's message was all about how they didn't have water, didn't have food. They grumbled, they grumbled, they complained, they murmured. But this is the first opposition as a nation. This is the first opposing nation they faced and it's their first enemy, right? Um, so Amalek will be a perennial enemy of Israel um, going forward. We're going to read about them for, for years and years to come, and, and, and the stories that, that come after this one. But they're a long—they came a long way. They came from a long way off to fight against Israel, and, and, and we don't know what they did to make an enemy out of this group. Maybe there was some old grudge between Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of Amalek. We don't know what they did to make an enemy out of Amalek, but or what Israel did. To upset them. Maybe Amalek just got wind of this group that was coming out of Egypt and they had a lot of momentum, a lot of power was being wrought by their God. Maybe they were just trying to make a preemptive strike. But more than likely, this was just a case of the enemies of God coming up against His people like they always do. And, and not to put too much emphasis on the plural, because the enemies of God all serve one master, right? The enemies of God all serve the enemy, and the devil, he doesn't need a unique reason to oppose God or God's people. It's his nature, right? There's a nature of opposition between the devil and the Lord. Now, we could go deep into Satan and his opposition against God, but I want to try to stick to the text and, and what pertains to our... Uh, text but what we do know is that Satan hates redemption and Satan hates restoration and we know that God defeated Pharaoh right and we talked about this a few months ago but Pharaoh was a picture of the devil right he was the serpent king he had a serpent on his crown right just as in Genesis the people fell under the under the, the deception of the serpent in Exodus the people of God had fallen under the slavery of the serpent king right so again all the symbolism here is so powerful, right? Pharaoh, a picture of the devil enslaving God people as if the fall was permanent. Look how far they have fallen, right? They are in bondage and there's no way out. But God rolls in and Yahweh proves Himself to be greater than the gods of Egypt. He restores and redeems His people and He brings them out of Egypt and Pharaoh is defeated, right? And they chase the they chase Israel to the Red Sea and they're swallowed. Followed up in the Red Sea. So Satan is defeated by Yahweh. Satan is defeated by God. But... Because the end, uh, the final defeat, the final um, uh, judgment had not yet come. Satan found yet another form, yet another way to oppose God's people. And that's how Amalek fits into the story. Now, now we know this from the New Testament. Satan is by nature a murderer. He's been since the garden trying to ruin what God made. Jesus said this about the devil in John chapter 8. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. So he lied to to Adam and Eve in the garden. His goal was to kill them, right? Separate them from God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, which is in contrast to what Jesus came to do, which is give life and give it abundantly. So we don't really need more explanation as to why, this, why Satan opposes God or God's people. He hates what God is doing, right? He hates the redemption that we have been given in Christ. He hated what God had did through Moses and from the Red Sea crossing as it put a stamp on his power. So we need to be aware that we have an enemy. We need to be aware that we have an adversary. And I don't mean that we should be paranoid or we should be worried around every corner something's going to hurt us or harm us or destroy us. But We don't have to be afraid, but we do need to be aware. 1 Peter 5 tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone, somebody who might be off guard to devour. Now, Seeking is a good word there and it's good for our text tonight because uh, he seeks for ways to trap and deceive and destroy. Now Amalek had come from a long way, literally was seeking out Israel. Here's a picture of kind of what is going on now. The little perf- little dotted line shows the, the the trip the Jews were taking, starting on the left side, ending up on the right side up there uh, near the Jordan River. But the battle that we're reading about tonight would have taken place just to the left, your left, of the mountain, which is the orange uh, little triangle there. That's Mount Sinai, and the purple star up there. That's where Amalek would have been native, or that's their home area, right? So they came a long way, didn't they? to get after God's people. But that's just the pattern. That's just the nature of the devil, right? He is relentless. He is relentless. He will travel a long way seeking to ruin your day. So you must be prepared. We must be prepared because you will meet Him, right? So we must be prepared when we meet Him because we will meet him. You will encounter the enemy. And if you're lucky to get past 9 o'clock and not encounter him, then God bless you. Pray for somebody else because they're probably already dealing with him more than once. Ephesians chapter 6 speaks to this. Paul says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but rulers against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly or high places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, which is any and every day. Having done all, stand firm. And look at what verse 9 says. Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Moses makes a definitive statement We're going to take a stand against the enemy. You're going to go out and take a stand against the enemy. They planned to be obedient and dependent, but this wasn't their fight. Moses says, I've got the rod. I've got the staff of God in my hand. Yes, it's going to require some work. It's going going to require that we take a stand for Him. But this is not our fight, Joshua. This is God's fight. Let's remember that before we go into battle. We don't cower at the enemy's warfare. We don't run away. We don't give up. We trust it to God. We double down on our faith. If you remember back at the Red Sea, I'll read the verses and you can turn back two pages and look if you'd like to. But back in Exodus chapter 14, remember the words that Moses said as they were backed up against the water as the armies of Pharaoh were coming. Moses said back in Exodus 14, verse 13, Do not be afraid. Stand still or stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. He will accomplish it for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace and hold your place and hold your faith. You can replace Egyptian with whatever force Satan uses next, but we need to be strong and courageous and confident in God, determined to serve Him and to stand for Him no matter how tough it might get and no matter how overwhelming the battle may seem. That next part of Ephesians speaks to this. Stand, therefore, against the fourth time we've read that. Having fastened on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness. So this speaks of moving forward, right? The belt is going to sure that, hey, you, as you run fast, right, nothing's going to fall off, right? You're, you're secure. You've got a breastplate that allows you to move forward and take any hits that come at you because you're not going to fall at the first punch as shoes for your feet, having the readiness given by the gospel. So again, we're moving forward, right? We're not standing still. We're not going to sit back and cower or be afraid or act like we aren't going to make any progress. We're ready to move forward because the gospel gets results and the gospel keeps its eyes on the prize. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So again, there's this sense of moving toward the enemy, moving past the enemy, because the shield is going to make sure that whatever dart gets shot at you will be extinguished. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God, prayed at all times. So again, there's this sense of motion, this sense of, hey, we're prepared, right? We're secure in our heads. We're secured in our hearts. We're secure in our, our, our waist where everything's tidy, everything's secure, everything is in place, and we can continue to move forward no matter what comes against us. You can break all those little things apart and make an awesome lesson out of them in and of themselves, but the idea overall there is a moving forward, a readiness to make progress. We're not retreating because we're building something. In that Ephesians passage, he talks about even though he's in prison, he's still determined to be a mouthpiece, to be a bold ambassador for the gospel. Now, Now, we get a bit of insight on what type of endurance and determination looks like within the community of God's people. We know they aren't going we are we know that we aren't to give up, but what does this look like practically? How can we actually you know, apply this and, and 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 put this into practice? Look at verse 9 or verse 10 through 13. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held his hand, held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And because he held his hands up, Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword." You now a lot of things going on there, but we have three different elements. We have the laborers in the valley, the leaders on the mountain, and the Lord in heaven. The laborers, the leaders, and the Lord. All three are essential for the community of God's people uh, making progress and, 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 and standing against the enemy. Something very important to notice, though, while there's nothing passive about the leaders or the laborers, the success is totally dependent on the Lord, Right? Even though the laborers had to be in the valley and the leaders had to be on the hill, if it wasn't for the Lord in heaven, the laborers and the leaders wouldn't be doing anything or making any difference. So it's all dependent on the Lord. Uh, and, and, And you have a leader. His arms are raised. And what is that a sign of? What is that a picture of? Surrender, right? And you have laborers in the field. And what, what are soldiers on the battlefield? What, 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 are, what, are we, what do we celebrate them for? What do we remember them for? Because they're doing something for the rest of us, right? They're sacrificing for us. So we have these very important, uh, you know, themes here. We have surrendering and sacrificing. Moses surrendering, and Joshua and his men—they're sacrificing their time, their energy, some even their lives for the battle. So whatever we do, we must do it with a heart of surrender. We're battling for God, not for ourselves. We're giving for God, not for gain. Of ourselves, The outcome is His. The work is His. So here's what God's trying to teach them. Here's the spiritual lesson that God is trying to teach them in a literal way. Success is found through surrender and through sacrifice. Now, not every scenario is going to play out like the battle with Amalek played out. Not every scenario is going to play out with a literal victory or a literal success that we can chart and measure and celebrate. The point here is, as long as they maintain a heart of surrender, as long as they maintain an attitude of sacrifice, they're going to be successful when it matters and where it counts spiritually. The blood, sweat, and tears, the sacrifices, everything they dispense in the battle is all God's. So if He works it out for their benefit, great. But if it goes another way, that's just God's will. But it doesn't mean they failed if these two things remain their key focus, their determination. Our true success will be determined by the measure of our surrender and sacrifice to God. Even if the outcome doesn't appear successful, if you surrender to God and if you sacrifice to God, if we do it all from that place, we have nothing to worry about. We, we left nothing on the table, I believe is what God's trying to tell us here. Moses literally led from this place. He had help on both sides to ensure they continued in God's favor. What do you think the message is? What do you think the practical message to the church is from verses 10 through 13? We have Joshua taking a group of men into the valley. We have Aaron and her holding up Moses when he lacked the strength to do it himself. I think the message here is it's all about surrender. It's all about sacrifice. I think the message here is it's about teamwork, right? The community of God. The church of God requires collective surrender and sacrifice. Collective, collective surrender and sacrifice. Moses needed help as a leader. Joshua needed help as a laborer. This is the emphasis that the church needs to focus on, right? Because there's no place for just a a few super saints who do it all and make it all happen. That does not bring about true success. You know, y'all know I I reference these few verses from Ecclesiastes all the time because when I read them a few years ago with fresh eyes, they really impressed on my heart something I feel like the church was missing and the church forgets. Ecclesiastes says, "If, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Although And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's why I believe the church is so important. And it's not just about me and my pew and my point of view. It's about me and everyone else around me, right? It's about one another. You have three on the mountain. You have an army in the valley. The emphasis is on more than just one. And again, it's proper. It's biblical teamwork that says, we're going to surrender. We're going to sacrifice. Demanding, expecting it from everybody. Now, I know when a preacher says that, sometimes people, that might rub people the wrong way, right? And that might not encourage everybody to jump in, and that might not make people who aren't on, you know, all, all, all in be, you know, be ready to surrender or sacrifice. And that's you know, churches are full of people, right? Who who are who would rather just sit back and watch other people do the surrendering and do the sacrificing, right? But it only rubs us the wrong way if we don't want to surrender, right? It only rubs us the wrong way if we don't want to sacrifice, right? Now, you guys are here on a Wednesday night, so you know how important it is to surrender and sacrifice. That's why you're here. That's why you love the church, right? Because you know what what it's done for you, and you want to do it for somebody else because you know what God can do for all of us. Now, how does that translate to the church? I think it's pretty easy to drop and drag this to our generation, but I want to show you something. Maybe you've never looked at this before, but at the end of Acts 4, beginning of Acts 5, the Bible kinda of sets a tone for the church, um, and, and what the church is supposed to be about. And y'all read this before, and, and Acts chapter four tells us this little story. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, just a little bit, this is not saying that the church was some sort of communist community and everybody had to, you know, they, they just said, hey, we're not going to own anything. The idea is, in the early days, being a Christian was illegal being a Christian was a dangerous thing. Being a Christian puts you on a wanted poster, right? So if you were a Christian, you were an outcast. You you couldn't have a job because if you had a job, that meant you were a public person that were was identifying with Jesus. So being a Christian was a very dangerous thing. So the, the early church was really kind of taking refuge with one another because they knew that, hey, we might not be here tomorrow, but they were willing to go down together if they had to. So they were all depending on each other. But I think this is a, this is an example that we should learn from and we should make realize it in our own communities. So we have these group of people who all were taking care of each other, right, and supporting one another, right? Spiritually, physically, whatever way you want to discuss it. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was on them all. So because of their surrender and sacrifice as a community, God was doing great things in their company. So you can see, the, I think the, clear, the author wants us to see the connection there, doesn't he? Luke wants us to see surrender, sacrifice, God's doing big things. And he repeats it. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of land and houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Now there's not a commandment where they say, hey, you got to do this. They were just doing it because they saw the potential. He re-emphasizes it and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to, any, to each as they had need. So what does laid mean? They surrendered it. What does distributed mean? They shared it, they sacrificed for one another. Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him. You know why Luke kind of is wordy there? Levites did not commonly own land because Levites in the Old Testament did not and did not by the covenant inherit any land so for Barnabas a Levite to possess land would have meant he was very lucky would have meant he was very rich and for Barnabas a Levite who sold land that belonged to him Luke's trying to say this guy really 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 had a change of heart because of what God was doing And said, I want to surrender and I want to sacrifice. Because I see what God is up to. And then, and then, the story takes a very sharp turn. But I think this is all part of Luke's purpose in this book. A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds. So they're all sharing, they're all sacrificing, they're all surrendering, but... Ananias and Sapphira, they get in on this. Oh, well, we can sell some land. We're wealthy people. We can give a little bit, but we're not going to give it all of it because, hey, why would you do that? We'll just give some because our sum is going to be more than most people's all. Our our little is going to be more than most people's most. So nobody will know. So he kept some back and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. I don't know where this is going, but the text tells us Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? So what is, God, what is the Word telling us here? They were going against the standards of the community, surrender and sacrifice. And Peter said, "Nah, The Holy Spirit won't let that happen here. What if the Holy Spirit was so sovereign in churches today? We'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? Oh, we want spirit filled houses. Maybe we need to realize what that means, right? We want the Holy Spirit like He was in those days. would be a lot of people not making it out alive. And I mean that putting my own self in danger. Why would you lie to the Spirit? Why has Satan filled your heart? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? Why You have not lied to man. You lied to God. And when you joined our church, Ananias, you said you were going to surrender and sacrifice, and you have lied. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear spread around the whole community. I bet it did. Here's the point I want to make. Why did they die? Because they were working against God. They were not in unity with God's people, not surrendering and not sacrificing. Think about this. If you read Acts 3 and 4 and you read Acts 5 and 7, there are plenty of people working against the church, aren't there? The the religious Jews, the Gentiles, there are plenty of people who are trying to kill Christians. They literally killed Stephen. Did God do anything to those people? No. No. He didn't punish or kill any of the Jewish leaders, but He did Ananias and Sapphira. Why? What's the message? God holds His people to a higher accountability. And that sets the tone for the church. He did the same for ancient Israel. It's a team effort. We need total united surrender and sacrifice to be fully filled and used by God. Most people are okay with being a little bit filled and a little bit used. That's just the world that we live in. Moses set a tone for the for for this as a leader to impart this model to us even and that's what I think the church misses in so many ways from the top down. I mean, Ephesians 4 tells us that the the job job of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain this unity. And people like me are a little bit too afraid to stand up and make the standards so clear. Think about it. Churches need pastors to equip the saints so that the saints can do the work. Not that the pastor doesn't or shouldn't Do the work. His job is to be amidst the sheep as a shepherd. Yes, but we must know our purpose. Let me say this about pastors, and we're almost done. It's tempting for a pastor for a pastor to become a local celebrity and just bask in the fondness and the attention. It's tempting for pastors to become politicians and will and deal and make deals with these and those. It's tempting for pastors to be a boss that rules and leverages authority. It's also tempting for pastors to be friends first. But pastors are not called to be good bosses or good friends, but good shepherds. And if you think that that means that a pastor isn't full of love or kindness or leadership capabilities, a pastor... As a shepherd, means that he's going to care and love and die for his sheep. And maybe that's why people like me, myself included, are so much more fond of the boss or the friend role. They know what the great shepherd requires of them. It's too holy to be scared, too holy and too sacred to love any less. Now, I won't read the entirety of the next passage that I intended on, but I want to say this. If you look over at Exodus 18, we see that Moses gets a word from his father-in-law that will speak to what we just studied. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 13, we're going to get a little bit of a look at what Moses was doing day to day. And we see that his father-in-law has a bit of a critique for him. It was on the next day that Moses set to judge the people and the people stood before Moses morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand before you morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have difficulty, they come to me. I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and His laws. And Moses' father-in-law said, the thing that you do is not good. You and these people who are with you will surely wear yourself out, for this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it yourself. Now the rebuttal would be, well Moses, we pay you to do this. (laughs) So you shouldn't worry about, you shouldn't complain or you shouldn't worry about getting worn out. You just do what you get paid to do. God uses Moses' father-in-law to really change the model of Israel and really it's going to influence the way the church is to be modeled. The way we see it taught in Acts 6, the way we see it taught in Paul's letter that for a long time I didn't see it the right way. Look at verse 19. Listen to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. You shall teach the statutes and the laws. Show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. So Moses, your job isn't getting any easier. You've got a great task to teach and to influence and later on he says you're going to have to handle the major and the great matters because that's your job, Moses. You're the leader. But then he says in verse 21, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth or trustworthiness, who hate greed, hate covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, fifties, and rulers of tens. So Moses, you're going to need some help. You're going to need a team if you're going to be the community of God's people that you are meant to be. Some of the virtues that are necessary for team members... Strong, reverent, trustworthy, and generous, which is the opposite of greedy or possessive or looking to do something just to gain something for themselves. And ladies, this is not just a male thing. The first church member that Paul acknowledges in the book of Romans is a lady named Phoebe. So don't think this is just about men. Church, we need to chase after strong and reverent and trust- trustworthy and dependable and generous hearts we become strong by being under the word and obeying and learning and hearing from the shepherds and the voices of God's men we need to be people that understand the value of worship and lean into it not away from it we need to be committed and we need to be generous and you know what we need to be willing to make sure that our churches aren't led by or at the mercy of anyone who is not full of these four things because if these four are not possessed virtues, then we will not be known for sacrifice and we will not be known for surrender. And we won't succeed. If you read Exodus 19, it says they come to the mountain and God says, He performs all these wonderful signs for them and they see all the lights and the glory. And God says, you are my chosen holy nation. You're my children. You're my children. And as Moses brings them to the edge of the mountain, he holds them accountable to all that God wants to do through them. And their response is all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's their response. Moses, we see what God is trying to build. We see what you're leading us into. And their response in 19 verse 8 is we will do all that God has spoken for us to do. And right after that, the Lord says, or the Bible says, that God's Spirit moved towards them. The cloud moved towards them. Why did it move towards them? Why did God move toward them? Because they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're going to be strong. We're going to be reverent. Dependable. Generous. People that surrender. People that sacrifice. Y'all have got a leg up on most of the world. But we all have room to grow, don't we? But let's make that vow to God tonight. And we will be successful because of it. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for giving me the time to do this tonight, to preach your word. God, it's exciting to see the text just come to life, and it's exciting to see how real, how practical it is for us. It's exciting to be able to read something that took place 3,000 years ago and see how important it is for us in the church to, 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 to take, take a lesson from and to learn from and to apply it and do it. God help me not to be too prideful to admit that I need some help. Hold my hands up sometimes. Help our our laborers not to be uh, not to be uh, uh, afraid to lay it all on the line. Because when we surrender and when we sacrifice to you, you always show up, and we will see the success we've been waiting for. Father, make us strong through your word. Lord, make us reverent in your worship. And Lord, draw out trustworthiness and draw out generous hearts that we might be committed to the work you called us to do. Lord, may we always rise up every day and say, all that you have spoken, we will do. Lord, we don't say that lightly. And we thank you for the help from when, we, when we struggle. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.